Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Lately, it seems like the U.S. can't impose itself on the global South the way it used to, whether with the Iran nuclear deal or isolating Latin American countries from Venezuela and Cuba or getting the world on board with its Russia sanctions. It appears both at home and abroad to be an empire in decline. Speaking of empires in decline, the sun has finally set on the last living vestige of the now-dead empire, on which the sun never sets. The queen is dead, and this has given rise to conversations about the crimes of colonialism, as well as defenses and denials of it. To discuss empires both dead and dying, why colonialism still matters, and the anti-imperialist struggle around the world, I'm joined by Sina Rahmani, creator of East is a Podcast. But before we jump into it, if you appreciate the show, you can help it grow by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Sina, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm such a big fan of your podcast, so I should open by saying everybody should uh, go listen to East is a podcast if you haven't already. Um, and I guess, you know, a good place to start uh, with this episode, since uh, we have a kind of like a vast array of things we want to talk about related to imperialism, is the death of Queen Elizabeth. And I, I, I you know, you're in Canada, right? I should probably like give you my condolences or something because she is also your queen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, according to the Lebanese states, she's actually more of your queen than she ever was our queen three days of mourning. <laughs> I know, what is that? I was actually really surprised by that. I was like, really? I've never heard anybody say anything about the queen. Um, but you know, it's interesting because I think like that's really, her death sparked a really interesting, though somewhat frustrating in many ways conversation about the sort of legacy of British empire. And on one side, it's like people are talking about colonialism and it's not something that just happened like centuries ago. It's the entire 20th century. Uh, and, you know, whether as like, you know, a direct empire in places like Kenya or Palestine or, you know, got India where the horrors are just, you know, we could do it. We would need more than just an episode to list the horrors that took place uh, in India, uh, not, you know, from famines and the partition and just the financial exploitation. I think the estimate is something like the UK drained $45 trillion of wealth from India, but like just, you know, sitting here, I'm talking to you from Lebanon, just being in the middle East. I mean, we had the establishment of all these horrible Gulf monarchies that were literally like funded by the British empire. Had it not been for the British empire, I don't think you'd have like a Saudi Arabia. Um, and then talking about Iran, you know, like Saudi Arabia played a huge role in exploiting Iran and participating in the coup uh, against uh, the first democratically elected leader of Iran. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I guess I'll let you I'll let you go on and on and on. Like, what are your thoughts <laughs> on the passing of the queen and what it means about what I think is like a dead empire? Because now it's the U.S. that's in charge. But what does it mean about the dead empire and its relevance in the world today. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, first of all, I mean, I appreciate what you said of my show. I'm really, I'm really touched that you're a fan and I love your work and I've been, I've been meaning to have you on since forever. So we're going to have to do this on, on my show soon. You heard uh, it here. And <laughs> <laughs> so overall, like when we talk about the, the British empire is that there's no, like you could spend decades studying it decades, like full time. And there are people who do this. Uh, in different ways, albeit. And you couldn't even scratch the surface of its crimes, 
right? Um, because you can't just separate the British Empire from, say, its U.S. variant, right? Like its U.S. let's say descendant. How about that? Um, and even then, even if U.S. Empire, for instance, in its current form, is a product, it's settler colonial, obviously, um, its own, it's a product of a European settler colonial project whose roots whose roots were sort of, um, let's say, sown by or whatever, like the seeds of which were sown by the British Empire, sure, like Britain, France, and Spain, they all rivaled for this continent in, you know, 17th, 18th centuries. Um, and ultimately, like, it was the British power that eventually won out with, like, the small exception of a place like Quebec. But even then, it was still a British it was still a clear part of the British Empire. And even then, the French Empire was much smaller, and we can't even really compare them. But ultimately, when you, do, when you, when you kind of look at it in its global scope, just in its own sort of, let's say, 200-year APEC or like 200-year kind of uh, trajectory, and it's older than that, especially if you ask the Irish, the Scottish, how they feel about that. It goes older. Uh, then we're talking about the world's most violent political entity. So if we look at it at its global scope, this is centuries of genocidal uh, violence, displacement, turning the world around, ecological devastation. Uh, it really, it really boggles the mind what the what this group called, like what this kind of entity um, called the British Empire managed to achieve manages to achieve too and in the sense that it's not really dead it's obviously handed over the rails i like to like make the analogy between like an uncle and his like nephew and that <laughs> seems to be like the kind of like that seems to be kind of like a good relationship a kind of weird paternal um you know somewhat you know they saw what do they say the special relationship i think that's what it's called but ultimately like the story of the british empire and the u.s empire and it's like american descendant you know in the neo-colonial world that it erected i mean this is something that our study our species will have to reckon with for centuries from now on like we will talk about the british empire uh as one of the most like devastating forces in human history i mean and people can laugh at that all they want but it's literally true in the sense that it coincided with an era that this power that um the the, the British managed to achieve for upwards of, you know, two, three centuries at its apex. And it's different. Obviously, those histories are uneven. There's a story in, say, South Asia that there isn't, that, that's different from, say, uh, the story of Turtle Island, right? So-called North America. And that's entirely different from the story in, uh, in say, Southern Africa, right? Or Western Africa, or Eastern Africa, actually, more, more correctly. So these are all, this is an interlocking, um, W.G. Zabold once described the Nazis as this like immense web of sorrow. And I think that that's, even if that's a correct assessment of what the National Socialists in Germany did, this is an even more immense web of sorrow. So that's all a big preface to saying that I have zero feelings for the death of this, this stupid, meaningless aristocrat to my life. I think that, I'm, you know, like if I never have to hear about the, the British uh, royal family ever again, I'll be a happy person. Obviously, it's not going to happen. And I think the more interesting thing to talk about is, is that we actually don't think about the legacy of the British Empire. Instead, we think about the, we think about the things that are, we're encouraged to think about, which is their, let's say, brand name figures, 
right? Like the British aristocracy consists of thousands, tens of thousands of people and who control a vast amounts of the world wealth. And it and did control earlier in earlier and, you know, centuries ago, or not even that long ago, a century ago, controlled a huge portion of the world's wealth and had a, and enjoy immense sway. I mean, this tiny little Island, right? If you think about it, spread its power across the entire world. I mean, you and I are speaking English right now. I'm doing it from Canada and you're doing it from Lebanon. And we have this like interlocking, we have this like strange thing. And that's like, in a sense, the British empire, like, like root, like, well, like it, it infected our genetics, like the genetics yeah. of our history. Like we, we won't be able to really understand it. We certainly won't. Um, living in this era, but centuries from now, they'll look back and like, it'll be this, um, you know, this never ending panorama of sorrow and pain and destruction and violence and uh, ecological destruction of immense wealth hoarding, theft. These, these things should be what we talk about when we talk about Britain, but we don't. We talk about tea and crumpets. We talk about the stiff upper lip. We talk about Dickens. I mean, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Like I'm a, I'm a practitioner of British literature. I have a PhD in 19th century British literature. I mean, who's, who's got the problem? <laughs> you know, like me right here. Like this is, you're looking at it folks. Like the, the, um, the force of this cultural hegemony of this hege hegemonic power of cult of the British empire will take a long, long time to come to terms with. And the fact that we're subjected to this absurd media circus around this completely, uh, you know, personality list, lack of charisma, aristocrat who just sat there and we were subjected to all of their stupid domestic problems. Meanwhile, like one of them is raping children and probably more than one. And of course that is the <laughs> legacy of the British empire uh, is, right. is child rape. And that's exactly what they are. And so I propose we don't even call it the, you know, you know, England anymore in this conversation, we just refer to it as pedo Island from now on, which is the kind of treatment that we should, that's the kind of approach we should take with all things to do with British and empire. And, you know, and that's, and that's my own view, but that's a deeper thing of my own kind of rejection of my, my, my PhD and my education, I guess. No, I actually didn't. I didn't know you had a PhD in 19th century British literature. That's really fascinating. I mean, you're actually more um, qualified to talk about this than anybody else <laughs> at the moment. But no, I mean, that's a really good point about Prince Andrew, uh, who was like, who the, I believe the British Royal or Queen Elizabeth herself, like paid for his legal fees because he was sued by Virginia Guthrie, who was one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims, uh, spent a lot of time on Jeffrey Epstein's, uh, I can't even say what it's called because this is a family program. But uh, anyways, I think Pedo Island's really good. And I think one thing that's so important to emphasize, especially as we're like forced to see all of these liberals in the West demonstrate how much they actually love monarchy, which is not something I thought I'd see, uh, and talk about like what a legacy Queen Elizabeth and her empire had and see people like Tucker Carlson deny like genocidal colonialism uh, literally is the fact that the UK, England, Pedo Island, whatever you want to call it, would not be wealthy. Neither would Europe had it not been for the fact that they they erected this empire to steal, to literally loot wealth from the parts of the world where you can actually grow food and where there actually is oil. Um, everybody talks about the, you know, England's industrial revolution, how important it was. It was literally 
allow it happened because of what they took from India and Africa and every I don't I think I saw a map like there's no corner of the world except for I think like Antarctica that uh that the British Empire did not invade or colonize uh, in some way so it, you're absolutely right and I, I but I think it's interesting too because one of the reasons why I think it's so difficult for the mainstream to talk about the crimes of the British Empire is because while the UK is no longer an empire. You mentioned uncle and nephew. I mean, the US really took over um, the mantle of leader of the empire uh, in a much different way, of course, than the British did. I mean, you don't have old school colonialism like you used to, but you have this kind of like imperialism carried out with, you know, uh, because of the dominance of the dollar through the use of the US military. So I'm just curious, you know, as we sort of are stepping into this era of new cold wars with the rise of China speak, you know, moving on from the death of the the British empire to the U S empire. Do you see the U S empire as a dying empire? And of course, like, I I don't say that in a naive way. Like even if the U S is weakened, I understand it's still very, very powerful and still the most powerful country in the world. However, it does seem to be at the beginning of some sort of decline. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the decline is is an interesting term. I mean, we're talking, there's different things. We're talking about as a hegemonic entity on the global stage. That's, that's, that's one thing called the United States, and that's the empire. The country itself, uh, namely the settler colonial, basically continent, which stretches a continent, right? Like the U.S.'s own... Um, its own sort of fictionality is kind of obvious in the difference, say, between like Maine and, you know, Southern California, right? Or Florida and Washington State, right? We're supposed to, and then that's not even considering their off-seas colonial, their, their colonies. And I do have to say is that, you know, the idea that, you know, you said about, you know, old school colonialism doesn't really happen now. The thing is that what we think of as old school colonialism isn't really old school colonialism. It's just colonialism is that there is the advent of something called neo-colonialism and it Mm -hmm. did involve, it did evolve, but say the colonial, like the naked colonial grab in of the U S say the last 20 years. And then prior to that too, but say just in Iraq, Afghanistan, and then it's through its proxies in Yemen and, and Syria and Libya, you know, um, and, and not even through its proxies, it was NATO, uh, which I guess is a proxy of the U S but these are all, these are all sort of like interlocking. These are all kind of overlapping terms to describe like a world empire, like a world, like a force on the global stage. Who's, Ability to uh, deter its its rivals and rivals is the wrong term because to call China and say Russia rivals of the U.S. is wrong because rivals suggest they're all part of the same race. Now, people love people love to people love to say, "Oh, China's colonialist." Yes, like China is a great power. Uh, Russia is a great power, but. What we talk about is what we talk about is imperialism, like capital I imperialism, is that that mantle has been inherited by the U.S. and the U.K. still participates in it. It's an integral part of the U.S. empire of imperial force, both in terms of as a military force, right, like and as a financial hub, right, and as a strange. Um, 
And it's a strange kind of like a political kind of tag team duo whereby and a continuation and it's, and it's, you know, force and it's sort of a continuation of an older game of domination. And we talked about the golf, mentioned the golf earlier. It's totally true that the golf wouldn't exist as its form, as a current form, if it wasn't wholly invented, if these monarchies weren't wholly invented by the British and in, in, in less to a lesser degree by the Americans uh, and erected and put into power and their power is is secured by not just American weapons, but also American troops since the 1990s, right? Since the 1990s and the first Gulf War, uh, first invasion of Iraq, which is to say uh, that that put presence of U.S. troops on on that kind of soil. And, and there were other ones, but ultimately this is an evolution. And you have to think about these things as these kind of... Um, you know, I can't, it's, it's hard to even look at as a whole, the British empire, like what, are, like, how do you even wrap your head around it? Like from the, just the experiences in Ireland of the 19th century of the mid 19th century, right. And the, what they call the great hunger stretching from the dozens, possibly hundreds of famines induced, artificially induced uh, in, in South Asia and in India to, you know, everywhere else. I mean, the clear cutting of the clear cutting of the forests of Turtle Island, right. I mean, this is ecological genocide, not to mention the actual human genocide side that coincided and continues right in the form of settler colonial politics that are whose antecedents lie directly in the country of that queen who just died right that's what she symbolizes and the fact that once again everything gets sucked up into this never-ending culture war so instead of talking about the legacy of the british empire and even just scratching the surface of it which is an exhausting painful very like rage inducing you know thing we're sitting here debating the merits of people's responses to her death right yeah. that's what we're doing Okay, that's the reality. That's how low our discourse is. That's how um, that's how paltry what masquerades as kind of news culture is. Like all these blue check marks with their seriousness, it just comes down to talking about people's reaction to the news. Like yeah. they're no different than any any sort of sports commentator. I mean, sometimes sports commentators actually do a better job in terms of just looking at something occurring and 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 animating it with some kind of like verbal discourse. And that seems to be the job of the news. And then now the emergence of online culture and a kind of participatory response culture into the news, which is different than when we were kids, right? When we were kids, the news was one way. Now we not just like participate in the news, but you're actively making it online in the sense that all local news has just turned into, this is what happened on the internet yesterday. Um, like that's, that's kind of a strange evolution. So an event like the death of a British monarch and like allows for a great flattening of everything. So everybody has to be talking about that. Everybody has to engage that. And that is what, that's the kind of information world that the American empire has given us. Right. Yeah. That kind of never ending gold spanning cultural jihad that that is that is at every level, every level of the U.S. media discourse from, you know, like like 14 year old like vlogger on YouTube screaming. Right. To like Tucker Carlson. I mean, it's basically the same thing, but with a much <laughs> larger audience like that is just one. And like CNN. Right. Like I say this a lot. CNN is the world's most expensive, most elaborate 
most well-produced podcast. It's just four people sitting around a desk talking. Like that's our media culture. And so, so the so instead of talking about like actual hard things that take, you know, that take a kind of, uh, you know, that take a kind of like. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, like you have to sit and deliberate the decline of the U.S. empire and what that means, right? You have to sit yeah. and say, like, okay, do you mean the country or do you mean its hegemonic force? And if it's hegemonic force, that means this. And its country, it means this. And if you want to talk about the country, then you have to look at the little local paces. So let's look at California. Let's look at Florida. Let's look at Texas. Look at the situation. I mean, that's that's the hard thing. And that takes time and that takes expertise and that takes limitless amounts of talking, but even more listening and being like, wow, I didn't know that, that that's the economy of like West Virginia. Like, Oh, I didn't know that, that like, that it's controlled, that this, that this state's wealth is controlled by like four families. I mean, like this, this is even true, about like even in Kent country, like Canada too, like New Brunswick, I just learned this the other day. It's like owned by like one family, like, really? like one huge, oligarch, like some degree, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I misheard this, but essentially like there are these oligarchies and things happening in our world that we have no clue and our media culture is there to ensure that only a tiny fraction of it. I mean, not to be a pseudo intellectual like philosophy nerd, but it really is like we're stuck in the cave still. We're stuck in Plato's cave and the shadow puppets yeah. are like these ghoulish imperial clowns who own these like handful of media companies. And we're all just like forced to sit there and sit and like sell with the kind of self-seriousness sit there and be like, wow, this is really interesting fragments of images that are going by me 1 million miles per hour. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard, you know, like to put it, it's, it's just hard. You can't, there's no easy way. It, it takes hours and hours of unraveling and an ocean of experts who have like local knowledge and then languages that are hard to interact. Like there are so many things in terms of like fighting imperialist war, like info war. And, you know, it's just us doing it. It's a bunch of amateurs from their houses <laughs> doing it. Like, that's it. What are you saying? <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. Um, no, I think it's a really good, I, that's an excellent point. And I'm actually, because you're in Canada, I am curious I assume the conversation in Canada is very much like like it is in the U.S. about the Queen and stuff. Um, I know that the in Beirut, the Canadian flag at the embassy is at half mast to honor to the dead Queen. Um, but you know, since you blah, since blah, you blah, blah, since you who Canada, cares? Though, I think, <laughs> to, right? But to, to pivot from the issue, I think Canada Canada like is viewed by most Americans having grown up in the U.S., I can say this as an expert, Canada is viewed as being like this really harmless neighbor next door full of like overly nice people almost to an irritating degree <laughs> rather than what it actually is, which is an appendage of the U.S., I think, empire um, that also has a really, even though we don't see Canada as a right-wing country, a very right-wing foreign policy, especially with regard to Ukraine. I think you have one of, I think you, there's a fairly large Ukrainian diaspora community in Canada, many of whom are like the children of Nazis. Like your, is it foreign minister? Foreign, your minister, foreign minister, yeah. Yeah, Christine yeah. Friedland. Um, but, you know, I'm just curious if you can like, maybe do you have anything to add about that? Because I do think that Canada's role in the war in Ukraine is quite interesting. They've been sending a lot of weapons. There's been, I think there's even less, um, debate in Canada about NATO and the proxy war in Ukraine than there is even in the U.S., which is pretty shocking. So I'm, I'm curious if you can maybe, I know it's kind of a big pivot, but if you can, first of all, explain that Canada isn't some nice, lovely place that's harmless. 
but also its role in, in this NATO proxy war in Ukraine, because we don't really think about it much in regard to that. No, I, yeah, I think, and it's actually not that much of a pity if you think about it, because we're we're sitting here talking about the legacy of the British Empire, and the difference between Canada and the U.S. is proof positive of that the the um, the relationships and the sort of evolution of these different yet overlapping settler colonial projects that run that are around the world, right? South Africa, like important nodes of which lie in sort of South Africa, Australia, Canada, the U.S. Um, and like that, like New Zealand, whatever, like, like that, that project, um, resulted in a complicated family of countries whose own evolution differed for different reasons. Right. So, which is not that radical of a thought. It's like, Ooh, countries, different countries have different, have different <laughs> histories. My God, breaking news, Sini. But in the sense that they all came from the same historical British settler colonial route. Now Canada is a bit more complicated. We have two of them rivaling each other and there were rivals in the U S like the French were in the U S they were trying rivaling. It didn't last as long. And, it wasn't as elaborate. Um, and it's legacy, the legacy of say the French Imperial settler colonial project didn't last as long in, in the U S as it day say did in Canada, right? Where there's a whole very large province of, uh, who are speaking French, who are lived their lives. And, you know, this right. entirely, like it is a minority language in Canada. However, it's a very large minority. Millions of people speak French and they have their own, um, they have their own sign of, what was the term in the nineties? Distinct culture, distinct society. I can't remember actually. Um, <laughs> and I mean, well, however you want to call it. And there was actually, they had this whole like sovereignty push, which is an interesting, if not kind of warped, um, you know, weird kind of uh, ethno-nationalism that 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 sort of takes the tools of of decolonization, right? The language and the kind of ideas of decolonization, but really in the name of a separate settler colonial society, which is we are a French settler colonial society, different from the English Canadian solar settler colonial society. Now. That's that's Canada's origins, right? But its origins are also in the in the sense that they share they share that settler colonial project in the sense that like they're a genocidal entity who erased millions of people and these civilizations, these thousands of year old civilizations that existed here that thrive, right? And that's forcible displacement and encirclement, and then they're essentially like. Um, you know, like these these treaties that were signed to end these wars because these indigenous people did put up significant and very real and very costly struggles against these wars. And part of the world, part of the countries, the settler colonial countries that exist today is that these hard won uh, pockets uh, come sometimes called, like, you know, called reservations or depending on how we want to call it, but these pockets of, to some degree, different degree, sovereign control, right? And this is these have these are things that say Europeans don't really understand, right? That like in terms of when you think of like a country like Germany, right? Its nationality, it's like its condition of being a nation state, whatever you want to call it, is wholly different than than the American, Australian, you know, Canadian, whatever variety. Now, to get to continue the answer, that now the relationship between Canada and the U.S. is one of. <laughs> global hegemon and right. as you put it appendage <laughs> we <laughs> are the appendage of the US. we are a we are a i mean there is something to be said about jean chrétien's resistance on iraq 
Um, he participated in a lot of other U.S. imperial projects, but resisted that one for his for their, the liberals of that time resisted for their own reasons. Now their legacy, the 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 liberals of today, gladly participate in a lot of different regime change projects, like like Canada has on its on the whole. There are differences of opinions between the U.S. and Canada on foreign policy occasionally, but ultimately we are their resource hub and we are essentially one of their like precious sort of they're called the five eyes country that mm-hmm. they share this kind of unique relationship with the US in terms of its global surveillance project which means its global hegemony right we're part of the game right like if british empire and if the rivalry if the kind of the term that that it was from the 19th century the great game you know, if that was supposed to be the rivalry between England and Russia or in general, I guess that was kind of one of the stories. But, you know, the, the idea of this great game, the U.S. is the main player and we're we're part of the supporting cast. Right. We're like <laughs> cheering them on from the bench. They have put us in for a couple of minutes and like the fourth quarter on stuff if they need us to like use a sports analogy. But like ultimately, like that's that's what Canada does. And Canada's like, you know, the re- and now. To answer the other question in terms of its perception among Americans, now, what you're talking about is in terms of what is a citizen's relationship to its state that that oversees, that ultimately controls its life or is responsible for its life, right? Like a state is a body of violence. It's like this legal entity, but it's obviously like what that means is that it can viol- it can do violence to you and it can deprive you of your freedoms if you don't follow its rules. Uh, it depends, obviously. If you're a member of a certain class, you can depend much different than other classes, obviously. That rule is uneven. But nevertheless, like that's the relationship between a subject and whatever you want to say, like a sovereign or whatever. If that sovereign takes this legal entity, it's like the form of like this legal entity, which most states do now. Now, that relationship is different in the U.S. than it is in Canada. That's clearly Canada is this social, social largely social democratic. It has its neoliberal characteristics, uh, but it's off. But it's a very big, uh, but it is a very rich country, not unlike the sort of Nordic states with a large sort of natural resource, natural resource base as it's a economy, which then can provide a relatively comfortable quality of life for its citizens. Once again, with important notes, of because it's a still ultimately a capitalist society, and it's a class society, and it's a racist capitalist society, so that, say, there are plenty of indigenous communities who don't have fresh, and something simple as, as drinking water, right? Like, that is a, that is a form of you know, that's a combination of things. That's a combination of a long war, a continuation of a long war of genocide. Sure. But it's also a register. It's also like um, something about how the class character and how cities and places closest to urban metropoles get more sort of civic attention than, say, rural populations, especially if they're, say, indigenous now. That's yeah. a simplification, sure, but ultimately what that's that's a big difference. And these countries evolve differently from from the same sort of genetics, uh, if you want to, I mean, I hate these biopolitical metaphors, but they work in this case, like the same, the same kind of like, you know, the same kind of race war project. And it was a kind of race war, uh, even if they had a kind of internal strife in Canada between the French and the English variety that they shared ultimately a kind of, um, anti-indigenousness and anti-blackness, I mean, to a different degree, um, 
and to and even less to a lesser degree anti-catholicism because that's also part of the story here too but that's a kind of general that's a kind of broad broad strokes answer to your question i i will admit i barely pay attention to canadian national politics and i pay even less attention to its foreign policy again because it's so immaterial now is that my failure it is like a citizen probably <laughs> like because my taxes like How funded, right? like i pay taxes <laughs> like my yeah like i mean the same way like you know, like the kleptocs, like the Lebanese kleptocratic state, like you participated in too. Now, those two things are not the same, mind you. Uh, like that's not the same participation. Now, I'm I'm a contra- I'm a contributory force to you, like sort of the vassal role that Canada plays in the U.S. imperial. Sure, and I should pay attention more. Like I should talk more about like our you know, insane clown princess foreign foreign minister and her like Nazi grandfather that we all know about. And like, like, like that's, 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 that's what they are. Like that's, and then, you know, our little, our, our black face loving a black and brown face loving (laughs) prime minister, you know, like these are all, these are all very sinister things that betray a class character and like the origins of Canada as being part of this like racist settler colonial empire that loves to do blackface that loves to do brown face. That's like when Justin Trudeau was caught doing those pictures, if you can splice them in here, they're just too good not to share. But like, like when he was caught, he was participating in a British imperial practice, yeah. right? Like that's a treasured British imperial social practice of donning this black and brown makeup and like making fun of natives. It just, someone took a picture of it stupidly and like that, like, and then let it go. And he was dumb enough to like, never think that this could get out one day, but that's what this class does. That's what this class is that like, his people have been doing this for centuries. They've been putting like shoe polish on their face while they were drunk at dinner parties and like saying that stuff and like saying all kinds of things because that's, that's the culture ultimately of white supremacy. And that's, that's where he comes from. So like these moments of like, where you get to see into their own kind of cultural genetic are interesting but the branding campaigns they're like oh canada is a fun place where you can go and you know do snowboarding and buy weed on every corner yes those are true you can buy weed on every corner and you can (laughs) snowboard right but that that's you talking about as a consumer right that's not like the character of the state and like that character is very very ugly you know, I, I to flip it around too. like what I think is interesting that's taking place right now when you talk about the character of these states is it's really disgusting um, on all fronts. Like, obviously, there's a big PR apparatus, mostly through Hollywood, that builds these kinds of images, th- th- these images of these various settler colonial entities that really does, I think, impact the way people in the third world do view the United States or Canada or Australia or the UK. But on the flip side of that, I think that something interesting happens because when we talk about appendages of the US, if we're going to refer to Canada that way and like the other five eyes countries, I think a lot of times the imperial powers, the colonial powers, whatever you want to call them, have this tendency to project that dynamic onto uh, resistance in the global south. And I'll give an example of what I mean by that. Like when you look at the Middle East, just to take one part of the world, where I think right now there is probably one of the strongest moments of like resistance capability than the Middle East has ever really had in terms of its ability to challenge U.S. hegemony in the region, like actually militarily. And that's a lot of that. All of that actually is because of Iran. Iran is like at the center of what we call the resistance axis, right? 
That said, you have Hezbollah, which is its own thing in Lebanon, has Lebanese interests. You have the Palestinian groups in Gaza, in the West Bank, wherever, have their own interests. You have the Syrians, you have the Iraqis. And I mean, I would say that all of these various groups that are part of the resistance axis have actually their own agency and their own interests and aren't controlled by or appendages of Iran. But the way they're discussed in Western discourse is that they're proxies. And I just think that that's such a huge irony because like you can look at, you know, Ukraine, I think as a, in many ways, a proxy of the West, but I don't think you can look at Hezbollah as a proxy of Iran. Anyways, I'm curious your thoughts on basically all those things I just mentioned, particularly the the idea that right now in the Middle East, there really is a, an interesting level of resistance capability that never existed before. And that even has proven itself able to act as a deterrence to various forms of U.S. imperialism in the region, whether they're talking about the Israelis and basically, you know, them not being able to invade Lebanon since 2006 because of Hezbollah's existence, or whether we're talking about the Iraqis and the Syrians and their ability to push back against the attempts by the U.S. and all of its proxies to, like, impose uh, an Al-Qaeda-style state in Syria. And we can go on and on, but I'm curious your thoughts. Yeah, this actually goes back to your first question. Um, I think it was the first question about the dying U.S. empire. And it's like that that death has been and it's a kind of it's a dying and, and it's a death of a certain form of British empire as well, because ultimately, like as we said earlier, is that the, the torch was passed from uncle to nephew like a while back, probably like over a century ago, really. And that project is now firmly in American hands. Now that project requires the ability to do, to, to flex on your enemies and to use the colloquialism, but really like the political science term is to like tell your enemies that like, if, if you, if you don't do as we tell you, if you don't take your position in the world economic order, if you don't take your position into like the global supply chain, right? Then we're going to, we're going to mess your country up. It will be, and there are different, there are different ways we can do that. The, the toolkit that the U S that in, you know, has itself, which was inherited in some ways in the Brits, but also developed together, right? Like this is a global Imperial mission and the like MI five or whatever, like the UK intelligence, Imperial intelligence apparatus, you know, emerged or like helped birth the CIA, like OSS or whatever. And, um, and that is because those that's that's part of the handoff. That's part of the relay race of this imperial system is to all conglomerate your forces and use them. And I think to take it back to the to the question of like the Middle East and West Asia, whatever you want to call it, that is that the the remnants of that is that these small countries like Lebanon is what four million. Something like six that. Million. Like, what's the population? Six million. Sorry, uh, six, six yeah, million. Don't, a six don't million. Don't try to make us less than we are. It's one. It's, it's the GTA. It's Toronto. It's like it's. it's I mean, so Canada's small. Canada's forty million, which is less than <laughs> which is less than California. So whatever. I mean, whatever population size. Lebanon is strong. I will. I refuse to make any jokes right now about the fictionality of Lebanon. I will never hear the end <laughs> you of are, it. No, on this program, no, no, not for me, not for me, not for me, but I can't promise you some Phoenician is not going to hear this and be offended. I mean, this is related, right? Like the modern countries, the modern, the carving up of the, of the modern, so-called modern Middle 
Middle East, it was intended to create relatively small disconjoined states who then were who then were vulnerable to different things, right? Like Lebanon does not have a huge ton of resources. It has geography, sure. It has it has its location at the intersection of like, you know, obviously the Mediterranean, but also it's it's overland, right? Between a kind of bridge and the Levant to other places like that, that's an important role in its economy. But the fact that it's had this, had it had, first of all, like not just carved up with like violent and occupied by the French. Right. And, uh, and, and then later on it's, it's political, like in the era the so-called formal era of European decolonization, right. It was when it was handed off to a bunch of uh, neo-colonial elites. Right. But ultimately the, with the sword hanging over its head of like, okay, if you fall out of line, we have these different tools, right. That we can make things happen. And this is a, something that happens the world over, right. This is true for Chile. This is true for, you know, like all kinds of countries, different parts of Africa have this, have this reality where if they don't, you know, gladly participate in whatever raw material extraction that the world order needs from them, the global north needs from them, then that's going to cause problems, right? Case in point, Evo Morales, right? Like, right. God forbid, God forbid these people take control of their own resources, right? This is, and so I think the story of the dwindling, the dwindling power of the U.S. empire is very much locked up in this small, albeit kind of we can call it an NGO, which is funny, but Hezbollah is an NGO, right? It is a non-governmental organization with a military wing, which began as a as a paramilitary guerrilla fighter force, which grew into a large non-governmental organization that has huge power, that has its own, that represents a large voting block of Lebanese yeah. society. Now, there are lots of Lebanese people who are throwing eggs at me right now uh, in their hearts uh, and saying to me like, oh my God, that's not, how can you call them a non-governing entity? They literally are in the government. But that's the thing. If if the ideals of liberal democracy were supposed to take root in the Middle East, if this was supposed to be the story, Lebanon, like Hezbollah's rise should be considered a success story, right? You're talking about a group of farmers who picked up AK-47s to fight a colonial occupation by Zionist troops, right? They fought them and it involved, it now evolved into a nationwide like political movement whose leader, like whose leader has the ability to mobilize hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, right? That's not some, that's not some rabbit out of the hat trick that any old buddy like can do. Very few people on this planet can claim, can you describe with that kind of power in, in his hands? Now, does, does Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, does he literally sit there and point and say, everybody change that light bulb, right? Like, no, he doesn't do that. But that's not how political systems work. That's not how political movements work, right? They evolve over time. They have, they have members, they have organizations, they have media, they have economic, uh, they have economic relationships with people who aren't in their group. They have agriculture, right? Like this is all a huge organization. And yet in the West, they're called a terrorist group. Now, of course, we know why they're called a terrorist group because they do exactly this. They had, they demanded and have achieved sovereign control over at least parts of Lebanon, 
right? Sovereignty doesn't, it doesn't mean they rule over it, but it means that they've established sovereignty because the sovereignty of Lebanon, which is to say that worthy Israelis to invade tomorrow, which is something they've done before gladly many times over, right? If they did that, the deterrent power of Hezbollah developed even which has been which is which has grown exponentially since 2006 which was a debacle for the zionists and for the americans and the brits right because this is all kind of they're all part of the same team right the fact that that power has grown that they've established a deterrent that says oh you want to invade us say goodbye to haifa say goodbye to your power plants right like say goodbye like you're going to live the way you made us live many times right. right so now this deterrence equation has changed and that's that's the that's the true sort of like um, inflection point of our moment that we, you and I get to live through. And we've seen change. Like we watched in 90s, we watched the U.S. empire just stomp its boot anywhere it wanted to go. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, but now, but there's, there's something else behind that. If, say, like, say, by the 90s, say the US went crazy and said, we want to invade Iran, Iran at that point had already established deterrence. Same mm-hmm. thing for the DPRK, same thing for China, same thing with Russia. Russia always had kind of deterrence. I guess you could say that they had nukes and stuff and they had a kind of deterrent power. Now, that's what you need to fight against an empire. That's what people have. Now, again, all you rubes out there who are screaming and saying Russia and China are an empire, no, they are great powers. They are great powers. And yes, great powers can abuse great power and impose, say, unjust and unsanctioned and illegal things. Yes. Does that constitute imperialism? No. That does not constitute imperialism. The imperialist powers are a block. That's why they all join together. That's why Turkey joined them. That's why Japan joined them. Right? That's why former empires joined the U.S. and the Europeans. That's why the Europeans joined the U.S. Because it's an interlocking system. It's a relay. It's like, you know, I don't know if your editor will watch wrestling. I don't know if you watch wrestling. I don't know. A lot of people didn't. But this is like it's like a survivor series of like mm-hmm. there's like one guy who's at the head of it and there's like three of them arrayed behind it. Like that's impo- that's the imperialism of our world order. It's like there's like the U.S., which is leads it, and then there's like the British guy who has his own stereotype. There's the Japanese guy in the corner. There's like the Turkish guy, the mad whatever sheikh, or like the let's call him like a dervish or something. Like that's <laughs> that's like what imperialism looks like today. And those countries target other great powers at times, yeah. and they have relationships with other great powers. Yes, right. America and its imperial force has a relationship with, say, Russia that it doesn't say with China. Right? Yeah. Does it fund? A, does it does it orchestrate a colossal ten year long proxy war against China through its neighbor no right it doesn't do that because it couldn't work right Mm -hmm. but did it do that in the case of russia it did work and now we're living in like the seeds of that proxy war right like this proxy war in ukraine was intended to eventually grow into a conflict like this an open hot war which it has been for four for eight years now with like immense death right i mean nothing approaching the kinds of death we've seen in 20 years in say west asia sure but we're not in like a we're not in like an olympics of pain here but in the sense that like these wars that have multiplied since the that 2000s right that have been led primarily by the imperialist bloc which is led primarily by the us these have been responsible for for immense pain and suffering. 
hundreds of millions of people displaced from Central Asia to the Caucasus to the kinds even you can even include the neoliberal like economic policies instituted on Mexican people and like their Mm -hmm. agricultural class, which led directly to the uh, like the proletonization of a huge number of them, which then fed into a cheap labor and lowered the cost of labor in the US, right? Like these are these is all like an immense, immense like symphony of of hegemonic power that the US conducts. And like there are different portions of it and there are different players. But like like that's that's what we live in. And there are countries that are outside of it. And those countries have increasingly drawn lines that the US without serious, serious consequences, destructive consequences that make it not worth it, can't cross. And that's yeah. the moment we're now doing it. And the question becomes what do what do the monstrous parasitic you know sociopathic like ghouls who administer the u.s and british empire like what do they do to this dying world like what do they do with this dying world power they see that their ship is sinking or at least the ship of its power and its ability to like, stomp on anything it wants it's sinking so what do they do I I can't help but think that they're going to make it as worse. They're going to say, if we go to hell, I'm taking you with me. Yeah, it's like the world. I feel like that's what that's where and they'd prefer that they want they prefer that we all live with them in their horrible world i mean that's the communist manifesto right like they make the world in their own image and so they want the world to be this nuclear like this like irradiated nuclear wasteland or they get to control it and it gets to yeah. be nice for them and their select friends right like that's it that's the two options of the imperialists and it's terrible and we live through this time <laughs> No, it's horrible. And, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because, like, they're also bringing themselves. And that's what sanctions are all about, because, like, the way they're sanctioning everything, it's kind of like, well, you think you're going to take us down? We're taking you all down with us because we're just going to sanction all the countries in the world that are where all the raw commodities come from. Like, let's sanction the biggest gas producers and biggest oil producers and cause huge recessions around the world and shortages of fertilizer and wheat. I mean, the damage they're doing with just the sanctions on Russia alone uh, to the global South are insane. And they're willing to do it because it's worth, you know, a bunch of people in Africa starving to death for the U.S. to maybe weaken Russia. And if it doesn't, well, then you're going down with us. That's actually like an important aspect of the mentality. But, you know, there's somebody else who died recently who did not get the same attention as the queen, Um, though he was like, you know, given nice obituaries in the U.S. And that's Gorbachev um, who passed away. Uh, But I think he got a different kind of reaction from the West than he did probably in Russia, given that Gorbachev you know, he oversaw the death of the Soviet Union or the, you know, decline of the Soviet Union and the breaking up of it. uh, And as really seen as like single-handedly destroying it, uh, which led to like millions of deaths from poverty and disease and alcoholism and ethnic conflict that came with the sort of neoliberalization that was imposed on, on Russia and the former Soviet states. So I'm just curious What's your response to the death of Gorbachev? Well, again, I mean, I think this is this is part and parcel of like the media environment that we live in is that then this hyper fixation on individuals and their their ability to interest their ability to supposedly like pull the levels of power in their own country. Right. Like we the like the media atmosphere that we grew up with is hyper fixated on presidential power, for instance. Right. right? Like news. The news is the news about the president. And it's been that way since 
at, for decades now, at least, right? And like, that's the kind of American imagination of the news. And that's kind of one model of it. And so a part of the fascination with Gorbachev, I think, is that, first of all, that he was he was an ally and, like an, an, and somebody who assisted the West in their goals, which was the dismantlement of the Soviet Union. Now, it's important to remember, they, the U.S. regime changed the remnants, the like remnants of the Soviet Union. What was left, there was like this core of power, and they did a regime change operation to get Boris Yeltsin into power. So even though... Like, even though they were playing by the rules, this new, this new order, like, say, for instance, like the head of the um, KGB, he, he gave, he gave the CIA a map of all of their surveillance, all of their surveillance, um, I think like the ways they had bugged the U.S. embassy, they gave them like a map of that. Like they, uh, Russia allowed like uh, monitors, American monitors, like it was a complete, let's say capitulation. I mean, I think it's the wrong word, but in the sense that if these were Cold War antagonists, if they were antagonists, this was what rep- the 90s, the late 80s and the ni- early 90s, mid 90s until the mid 90s represented the complete and utter uh, capitulation of this new country called Russia, right? And the triumphalism of the Americans over this guy, uh, over the um, over the over the Soviet Union, right? Over like the victory over the Soviet Union is still something that liberals, and especially it's liberals, they parrot this and they love it. Whereas in reality, there was a lot of violence, right? As you said, there a lot of their social indicators, a lot of like their basic life quality things just plummeted. They lost millions of people to emigration, right? They de- they like this country depopulated. They de-developed it, which is what they do to third world countries that are their enemy, right? They try to, they first conquer them and then they de they de-develop them, which is like true neoliberal style, in the hopes of attaining as much raw material as possible, right? Now, Russia is the land of raw material to these people, to the ghouls, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and for a good 10 years. There were there was a feeding frenzy. Now, what happened? One, a member, an opera, somebody from their own deep state, right? His name was Vladimir Putin. Like <laughs> no, came out of their system. Saying. You're not like saying. he came out of their system. <laughs> like he came out of their system and said and like asserted, like asserted a kind of political power that had been in a vacuum for ten years, for almost ten years, right? Like Boris Yeltsin had legitimate deep, like diseased, alcoholic mind who was not capable of doing his job. And yet this guy was signing, was making huge decisions or at least supposedly looking like it. And one of the decisions he made, again, strange way in his history is works in strange ways. One of the decisions he made was to hand over the reins of power to this guy from the deep state who had hitherto not really been known. He had been working in, uh, I think, St. Petersburg for a mayor I think that was his trajectory. And before that, he was famously in the KGB. Uh, He was trained as a lawyer, right? Like Putin's rise, Vladimir Putin's rise to the presidency and his own stay in power, which has been, you know, which has been through phases, legal phases that have evolved, right? I mean, the fact that this guy has, what, 70% like approval rating, 65% of approval rating, that is something that no leader in the West can even approach, Right. Mm-hmm. I think the most Obama ever had was like 60 or something, maybe 50. I don't even remember now. Like, like no approach. So if like liberals who bash their heads over like the evil of Putin, what you're saying is 70% of Russians are supporting evil. 
right? Like you're willing to say that. Like if you really think the bad things about Russia and Vladimir Putin, then 70% or 65% of Russians think those bad things. And that's what you think of Russians, right? Like that's what you think. That's what you think they do. Like you're so, like we, we speak with such confidence about other places in the world. And yet at the same time, we ban their media. We deny them. I love this quote. It's from Edward Said. We deny them the permission to narrate, right? Mm. All their channels get blocked. Our, our freedom-loving liberal media establishment has enjoys nothing other than pressing the block button, which doesn't mean like block them from seeing your feed. It means block them from being seen by anybody else, right? right? Like the principles of liberal, of liberal enlightenment go out the window. The mm -hmm. moment, like the moment a liberal is challenged by by anyone right those go out the window we know we know that from history right like the liberal enlightenment supposedly birthed in the 18th century this is also when they colonized a huge chunk of the world it was the same people it was the same scotsmen and irishmen and brits these same people who were writing nice things those though the same their contemporaries raped and pillaged and stole and burned villages and mutilated people and took their body parts and collected their everything like the and that's that's the political the the, the remnants the ashes of that imperial looting of the world and then when you combine that wasn't even the only european empire when you combine that into this horrible monstrosity with the spanish with the french with the portuguese with the german with the austrian with the so turks bad. i'll include the turks because you want to be included in europe so badly we'll include you here okay <laughs> with the austro-hungarians like this this is a continent, this continent of Europe, which doesn't exist, right? Which is fake, right? It's Eurasia, actually, if it's an idea of a landmass. But this entity in our minds of imagined geography like, is, is responsible for billions of deaths. This is the source of immense, immense human violence, right? And until we start to dismantle their lies, which means when, when, the, when the aging 90-year-old monarch of one of the countries dies, we laugh at them and mock them, and we spend, you know, the next month circulating images, and we spend that we should be doing that every day, right? Like, we have to do the painful work of bearing witness to the violence of empire. And and instead of getting look like, you know, and, and, and that's kind of what the goal of a lot of anti-imperialist media work is, right? Like looking at, looking at the chaos, like looking at, you know, like, um, you know, like Benjamin's angel of history, right? Like there's the, like, you're just staring, you're staring, you're staring at this, this rubble pile up and it gets bigger and bigger. And occasionally a gust of wind will like push you forward. Right. And like, that's the only job you have as like somebody like doing media today. That's the only job you should have is to do your best to like bear witness to the like insane political violence that our elites, like literally our elites, like the people who run our countries, right? And you, not so much, but me. Like, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, like that's, well, but, that's fair, a, I, am like, I am I am American as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, like, you're part you of it too. That. You're just- a, You yeah, can get me on that. I want to be a part of the- like, I want to be a part of the mean people. No, I'm just joking. I definitely don't. I mean, we but, are. Well, they no, conscripted us. We had no choice. It, we had no choice. We were born into it. I mean, I don't know about your situation, but like my family 
isn't went to the United States because there was a war in Lebanon that you could yeah, tie me too. to you know, war in Iran. Right? <laughs> they bring right. war everywhere they go. They've waged like people don't realize this. They don't even realize the last 20 years of wars. People don't stitch together Syria, Yemen, Libya, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan. They don't stitch them together because our media class does this important work of of bracketing everything off. Right. This is the news segment on Afghanistan. This is the news segment on on Iraq. Right. They have these ways that, oh, this is the civil war in Syria. Oh, this is the civil war in Yemen. Right. Like they have this ability to manufacture the world as these series of isolated conflicts. Whereas in reality, we're talking about we're talking about just in the last 20 years alone, 25 or 20, whatever, 22. Like you're talking about. Hume five, five, six major world conflicts. And that's not including Ukraine. We should include Ukraine also. Like six major wars that bring in over probably a billion people. Uh, like that's that's probably like that's probably one of the profound, profound like markers. Like we'll be living in the remnants of this violence that's just in West Asia alone for another century. Like Syria will be rebuilding for another 50, 70 years to to attain. Now, that might, might be wrong. Maybe it'll be faster. Maybe it'll be 20 years. Maybe it'll be 25. I don't know. There's a new world coming. I, I believe that much. Well, I but- hope there is because as I love that as you were like on that whole <laughs> rant about the, my electricity just shut off because I'm in Lebanon, which is a part of everything you just said. But please continue. I just, I just wanted to it's make true, sure yeah. anybody who they was want, like, why did Rakhine just go They want people dark? living in misery. They want people yeah. living in misery. They want people de-developed, especially those countries that don't fall in line, that don't heal, right? So Lebanon is one of them. Syria is another one. They want Iran to do it. They try to starve it, but Iran is rich in its own natural resources, which is to say it has energy. And so they can, and it has land, so it could produce its own food and it could heat itself and it can light its own, it can electrify itself, which is huge, right? To any modern nation state. Syria used to be able to, unfortunately, their their oil fields are occupied by the US and they're being looted, right? And meanwhile, the liberal, our, our media class here, even left liberal, just doesn't say a word, right? Like we have more war now than we did during the Iraq and Afghanistan era, there's more wars because they're still in Afghanistan. They're still in Iraq, right? Like they're still occupying. Sure, their forces have been greatly reduced, but the imperial project is just as much active as it was before 20 years ago. It's just evolved into a different phase, right? And people support it now and they argue with you if you dare to like, uh, uh, dare to question it. I mean, that's, we've gone backwards. We've gone backwards. You're an Assadist, you're a yeah. Putin stooge, you're a genocide denialist, you love authoritarianism. You I mean, we've like we've all dealt with this stuff. It's getting old at this point. I don't know if it has the same effect that it had maybe five or six years ago, or maybe it goes up and down in waves. But you know, I think that's a good a, like point to almost wrap on. Cause I do, I think that's I do want to ask you with regard to your podcast because we do something very similar, which is what you talked about, which is anti-imperialist media work. Uh, And so I'm curious, you know, with your podcast, obviously you kind of explain what you're trying to achieve, but like, do you get pushback? Do you feel like you have an impact? I think, I mean, you do have an impact on me. I've, there's people that I I didn't even know until I listened to them on your podcast who are like brilliant anti-imperialist academics. Uh, Your podcast is a very good, like, uh, resource in, in that department. But yeah, I mean, what, like, you, how Andrea. do you do anti, you're welcome, but I really do mean that. Like, how do you do 
anti-imperialist podcasting media in this era when, you know, you, I think for a lot of people, if you, especially if you look at like people like us, it almost looks like there's so little to gain because all you do is face like smears and libel and people attempting to destroy your reputation. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things I think, well, there's a couple, well, I think there, first of all, like what, what I do and what you do, I think you, you, my job is, I feel like I, I have the very, I have a very nice luxury, which is I sit back and I just let episodes kind of come to me. Whereas I think you're much more, I think you're much more in the trenches of like fighting like daily, like whatever, like, I don't even know how you do it, honestly. Like I watch what you do. I follow (laughs) you in this. Like, I don't know how you have that. And you also, I mean, your platform is much bigger than mine. You have way more, you have hundreds of thousands of followers. I have like 15,000. My show is small compared to yours, much smaller. And with size comes, and I also think being a woman, the gender aspect of all this with, with a certain sort of size and with a certain sort of reach and, Mm. and obviously like added to by the fact of like the gender thing is that, you you then solicit all kinds of just insane clown incel rage and i mean i've seen it on your feed i've seen how people attack you they just like and like just get a like people who have no life than to sit around and like scream at other people on the internet right and i i i don't know what it is i think it's the size of my show i think it's also the like like I don't, I, I, I think my, my, I don't, I'm not like a guy who says I've been shadow banned, but my, my uh, Twitter has been, has not grown past 15,000 for oh, months. I used Twitter, to grow every my month. My Twitter stopped growing. Yeah, yeah. My Twitter stopped growing a while yeah. back. Sh- definitely shadow but, like, banned. I never, yeah, I never, I never see your tweets anymore. Actually. I never see your tweets. So yeah, I don't I see think either unless I go find them. Yeah. Shadow yeah. Algorithm. Yeah. Suppression. Yeah. Rhythm. Yeah, it's we're all like it's, we're all sort of like you know subjects of this of the algorithm, and we can just be erased. And so, part of the lesson I think here is use these platforms, like you know, use these platforms as much as you can to find like-minded people, interesting people, and they don't even be that have to be like-minded. They just have to offer something something that you get to learn. And like honestly, like I feel. I don't even feel like a media person. Like, I guess I do. I do media. I do lots of media, but because like the, the nature of my show is that it's long form and that it's, uh, it's mostly audio based and it's, it's kind of, um, it's kind of like at the whim of my own scheduling. Like I don't have, I don't have like an ingrained, I don't have like, I don't have like a, like I haven't done an episode in like a week and a half. I don't know when I will. (laughs) I guess this is an episode. I guess this is like, you know what I mean? Like my show began, my my show is a, is kind of more amateur, I would say than your show. Like you're a real like working news professional, I would say like way, like way more than I am. I feel that way. I mean, I'm a professional, sure. But like there is something called like news and to, to run with it, to kind of like ride it out, you have to like go at the pace of the news. And I feel like there are people who can do that well, like you, uh, like Ben Norton, like like a ton of people who can kind of ride it out and can kind of like talk and keep on the thing. And like that takes an energy that I I can't muster up. Like I used to do a ton of episodes every day. I, yeah, I don't know how you do it. Like I don't know how you like the grind of like just even one, up. three episodes a month. Yeah, I'm like I honestly, I don't know how you do it. Just, just it's like that Homer Simpson gif. Maybe your editor can put it in of him, of his head exploding. Like that's what it feels sometimes 
just watching our region, let alone the entire world. Like, like you just, your head explodes and you're in Lebanon. You see it every day. You see the crazy things like, like the (sighs) fact, like what, like what they do to that poor little country. Like I live in the cultural, like luxury of the global North, right? Like it's all very far removed from me. 24 hour yeah, like even the simplicity of having a fridge that runs 24 hours a day right. like that right. makes my life so much easier compare and like so like the fact that you do so much more and you do it with the resources that you have under the struggles i mean you want to break lebanon look at the kind of people lebanon creates okay they create people like rania who fucking <laughs> effortlessly like have a power outage in their house and just keep rolling with it like it's no problem like like that's if that's not like a metaphor for like the resoluteness of Lebanese people specifically, but I would say people of the region, like, I don't know what is, but I hate the resilience porn. Okay, fine. Like resilience porn is kind of played out fine. But, but if you think denying people like a fridge for 24 hours is going to make them submit to your world, if it's just going to make it okay that they stole Palestine, that like that they put their bases, that they rape and pillage Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, Afghanistan, that they wage dirty wars, that they suffocate people, they deny dollars, that they build these like economic systems that are exploited, that are built on dollars, and they remove them like it's like it's just a like it's some kind of like you know a little treat that's nothing to them, right? That oh we're going to take away Lebanon's like entire financial sector. See you later. We're just going to starve it because they dared put up a bit of resistance like this is the this is the world they want where the weak are punished for any act mm-hmm. of resilience for any act of resistance and the strong are are defending the world order they're the noble ones right they're defending human rights i mean to even look at this world and to comment back on the media environment drives you crazy so again yeah. the fact that you do it day in day out like multiple times a day with different people. Like I, I, I praise you. You have a lot of energy, Rania. You take a lot of bullshit from people that you don't deserve. I, I like, you you know, I never will get anyone, any of the fraction of the platform that you have. And that's honestly a big relief in the sense (laughs) that with the platform comes so much stress. Like I like my life now. My life is fine. Just keep it this way. God, it's like Homer Simpson (laughs) working at the bowling, at the bowling place. Like I like it. It's good. I have make enough money. I'm, I'm fine. Like, don't bring me ten thousand new subscribers because ten thousand new subscribers. It's it a brings blessing you, and a curse. It's a blessing. Yeah, and a curse. like it brings you. It brings you hell. Like, I like being small, and so there is. Oh a, my gosh, there is an interesting I, difference. Yeah, I mean, I, no, I mean, I think those are all all good, fair points, and I do appreciate the compliments and really like the feeling in terms of like respect here and admiration is mutual. Cause I do love what you do. And I think there's a place for all of it. I like learned so much from the stuff you produce. And um, I do want to once again, encourage everybody to follow East as a podcast, check it out. And then also, can you just let people know, like they can follow you on Twitter. Um, I, I can link to your Twitter in the description. Uh, is there anything else you want to like shout out? Yeah, no, I, uh, thank you. Thank you, Rania. This was a lot of fun. It took, it took us entirely way too long to make this happen. We'll have you yeah. on. Let's talk Lebanon. I want to have like, you, can you be our unpaid Lebanon correspondent? I'm happy um, to be. Part, I'm happy to be. I'm I here. Will, so. <laughs> I will say this. 
if 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 you were to ask me like what is like the secret to your success and well I'll say this and this is a very corny it's a very liberal thing to say but it's community I managed mm -hmm. to create a community of people around my platform the platform that I built and I built it with other people's help right like they came on they gave me their time for free and they gave me all their years of training so like even like say for instance the episode like three-year-old episode fantastic episode with martha mundy yemen scholar like that episode sits there gets downloaded every day by at least four That's or five awesome. different people like That's those awesome. four or five people are learning from they're benefiting from martha mundy's decades of reading and research and that's just one episode i have like 300 and there's like a hundred behind the paywall and they're all with interesting different people and that's and that culture i think of media consumption i think we should all strive for i'm not saying you should be like sini but on this register you should be like sini in the sense that you want to you want an adulterated media world you don't mm. want a nice monogamous uh eternally cyclical media world of the same group of actors of the same no. commentaries because that's how you get msnbc yeah. And a bubble. That's how you get these little morons who all talk to each other, who all just who in their tiny little provincial minds see themselves as this arbiters of world global information. When in reality, they know their small little lives in America. They live a small little life in English and they're exposed to a tiny fraction of the world. But because of the cultural force of American imperialism, and this is what they have complete lockdown on. They will never be a rival, including China. China and Russia to the kind of informational power that the U.S. currently controls, that no one will ever rival them. And that's that's their real weapon is that their ability to create the world in their own discursive image so that a yeah. dirty war waged by Qatari and Saudi and UAE funded freak jihadists and Salafists and regime changers and mercenary Contras, they get turned into rebels right that's that that's that's the nasty, that's the world and they get to have thousands of hours of, of media coverage they get immense amount of sympathy and this is the story of our media world that they can just create the world so if there's just anything i can tell people is that unlock the people in your life or the people you may not even know and use social media to reach out to them and make connections to people and find people who are interesting because more likely than not, they'll be happy to share their interests with you and their research. Even if your show has yeah. listens has 30 people listening to it, more most people most people are excited to share their work. Most people. Like a lot of people have a lot of like, you know, time constraints. Okay, fine. But like your average academic who has years of training will be happy to answer your questions and they'll be happy to do it on camera or on, or on audio at least. And they'll be happy that 40 more people are listening to their insights than they were before you reached out. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to be an amateur. I was an amateur. I am an amateur still. I almost picked the wrong mic before we started this once again. Like I almost picked the wrong mic. So I'm still an amateur and I'm also a producer. I produce other people's shows and I still almost made that mistake. So we don't need to be a professional. All you have to do is have curiosity and find people who are interested in talking about those curiosities with you and kind of indulging those curiosities. And honestly, it's like the best job in the world. I get to learn and I'm paid to do it.
Yeah, no, it's the, it is the best job to be able to do that. But I, I want to thank you so much for giving me your time. This was such a great conversation and I hope that we can have you back on in the future. Thank you, Rania. Thank you for listening. Come check out my show. You'll like it if you like Rania's show.